Amen. Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, if you're using the Black Bibles, that can be found on page 942. This is Romans 5, of course, really (laughs) a lot of the book of Romans, but Romans 5 is one of the great gospel-saturated passages in the Bible. And so the sermon today is going to focus on Romans 5, verses 1 through 3. But, this, but to get us started, I wanted to read verses 1 through 11, just so we can see the, the context that it's in. So I'd ask you to stand once again in honor of God's word, please. And follow along as I read Romans 5, 1 through 11. Let's hear the word of God together. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith... We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the message today is Gospel Truths. The life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus has secured some wonderful realities, some wonderful gospel truths for all who are united to Christ by faith. And so today I want us to understand and to revel in these truths, to glory in these realities as we consider what is true for the believer both now and in the future. And so if you're Taking notes, you see how the outline is is organized, past, present, future. So we want to begin with a past event. Something wonderful has taken place in the life of every Christian. If you're a believer today, something wonderful has taken place in your life. And that is, we have been justified by faith. Right? We see that there in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. You see, it's in the past tense. This is something that has happened. We have been justified. Well, what is that? Justification is God's declaration that the believer is in a right relationship with him. It's God's declaration that the believer is in a right relationship with him. Justification is a legal declaration made by God... At the start of the Christian life. This is what we often refer to as getting saved, right? Because we don't start off life 
in a right relationship with God. We start off life separated from God. By nature, all of us are separated from God because of our sin. God is a holy and a righteous God. He's our holy and righteous creator. He is sinless. He is perfectly righteous and and cannot, I'll say it this way, sin is not allowed into his presence. Sin is not allowed into God's presence. And so, again, that's why we, we are in a dilemma. We are separated from him. We are, by nature, sinful people, both in our actions and in our very beings, our very hearts. Uh, because of the fall, because of Adam's sin, we're all born uh, with hearts that are naturally bent toward sin and rebellion against our creator. We have hearts that are bent toward being selfish, not worshiping God, not, not following him, not bowing before him. And so by nature, we are separated from him. Matter of fact, we fall short. We fall astronomically short of the perfection and the holiness that God requires. And so by nature, none of us are right with God. And that means, again, now to to get back to justification specifically, that means we stand guilty before God. And I think we need to try to picture what that is like. Because, again, that's true of every one of us by nature. That we stand guilty before God. Imagine being in a courtroom. Imagine that in that courtroom your, your record, your, your rap sheet is being read before the court of heaven. What would be on that rap sheet? How many hundreds, no thousands of sins would be listed in your life? Sins that have been committed against God, against your creator, against your judge. I tried to think about that a little bit this week. Just what, what would be on that list? Right? Lots of sins. Pride and, and selfishness and slander and bitterness and, and, and lust and, and, and um, um, unforgiveness. Right? I mean, just the list would go on and on and on. So imagine you're in that courtroom and those sins are being listed. And, and you can't argue against that, right? You can't try to claim any kind of defense. You know that you are guilty before Almighty God. And yet the case has been made. All those sins have been listed. And yet then when the verdict is read, you hear not guilty. You hear justified. You hear paid in full. You hear forgiven. That's the legal decree that's been made for every person who's united with Christ by faith. And this is not just us trying to minimize sin. This is not us trying to to excuse it and brush it away. No, this has been the decree by Almighty God, the, the final judge. You are justified. You are right with me. That's what it means now that we have been, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. A legal decree from God has been issued that you are now Christian, okay? That Christian, you are now and forever in a right relationship with God. God has made that legal decree. That you are in a right relationship with me. Your status has completely changed from what it was by nature. 
You who were an enemy of God, you're now reconciled, you're now adopted, you're now one of his beloved children. You who were far off and separated from him have now been brought near into a loving, permanent covenant relationship. You who were guilty in your sins are now forgiven and accepted as righteous in God's sight. That's what it means when it says, therefore you have been, therefore since you have been justified. Now how in the world did this happen? How can a person be justified? Well first let me tell you how it doesn't happen. And and we can see that by inference from this verse, but we see it just a couple of chapters earlier explicitly. We are not justified by our works. Right? Just flip the page if you're using the, the Black Bibles. Maybe on your Bible it's on the same page. Look back at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans 3, verse 20. We're going to be looking at this, these, these verses here, uh, Romans 3, 20 and following a little bit, but we'll come back to Romans 5. Romans 3, 20 says, By the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law. By the Old Testament law, we could just even say by good works. No one will be justified in his sight. We cannot earn justification. We cannot do enough good works to erase our, our sin, to erase our guilty marks. And there's not a certain number of good deeds that we can do to earn that, that declaration from God that, okay, now you're right with me. We can't earn our way to being made right with God. Right? That's what it says. By the works of the law, no human will be justified. So we are not justified by works. Rather, justification occurs because of the free grace of God. The free grace of God. Stay there in Romans 3. Look at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. We are justified by his grace as a gift. This amazing declaration, this this legal decree that we are now in a right relationship with God, though we don't deserve to be, is all of his grace. It's all of his unmerited favor. We cannot earn it. It's something he freely bestows on us. It is a gift. And again, do you see how desperately we all need that gift? Without this gift of God's grace, we would be lost forever. Without this gift of God's grace, we would have no hope of ever being in God's presence. Remember, he is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And we are sinful by nature down to our very core. And so without this gift, we would have no hope of of being reconciled to him now and no hope of being with him when we die. But praise God, he is gracious and he has given this gift to us. We are saved because God chooses to be gracious and chooses to rescue us. God gives justification to us. It's a gift by his grace He gives it to us, though we don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. God gives it to us, even though we actually deserve right the opposite. 
And that's also what grace is. It's grace's unmerited favor for those who actually deserve his punishment. God's unmerited favor for those who deserve right the opposite. God declares us righteous knowing that we deserve to be declared guilty. Isn't that amazing? We deserve to be declared guilty. It's a slam dunk case. And yet God says, I'm declaring you righteous. You are in a right relationship with me. But how can God do this? Right? If you're tracking with me so far, you might be wondering, how can a holy God declare sinners to be righteous when they are by nature sinners? Isn't God an honest judge? Doesn't he need to punish sin? And the answer is yes. And so Romans explains that God can justify sinners because of the finished work of Christ. God can justify sinners because of the finished work of Christ. Again, we're in Romans 3. And and we're going to see Romans 5 builds on all this. Verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, talking about Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So you see the, the, the grounds, the basis of God's judicial act in pardoning sinners and declaring us righteous. The reason he can do that is because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Jesus provided redemption, verse 24 says there, for his people. As we've saying, Christ's death paid the price that was necessary to free us from the penalty of sin that we deserve. And frees us from the enslaving power of sin as well. Verse 25 says, God's, or excuse me, Christ's death was a propitiation. You say, well, what does that mean? A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. And so that means that Christ, Christ's death has fully satisfied God's just and holy wrath against the sins of Christ's people. Against the sins of all those who are united to Christ by faith. God's wrath has been satisfied because Jesus was obedient He willingly came and and lived in the place of his people. He is the eternal son of God, but he took on a human nature and, and lived the perfect life that we fail to live. He obeyed God every day, every moment, no matter how he was tempted. He resisted, he fleed those temptations, and he stayed true to God and obeyed him, even to the point of death. His his death on the cross was the culmination of his obedience to the Father. Even though it meant incredible suffering, even though it meant uh, being separated from the Father and and being actually an, an object of the Father's wrath, Christ willingly laid down his life in obedience for out of love for his people and for the glory of his Father. So, God can declare us who are united to Christ. He can declare us righteous because Christ's death has paid for our sins. He can declare us righteous because we are clothed in the righteousness now of Christ. 
God can declare us righteous because our sins have been punished. Justice has been executed on our sins because Christ bore our punishment on the cross. And so verse 26 of Romans 3 gets to my question. How can a holy God justify people who are sinners? How can he say and declare, hey, you're in a right relationship with me, even though we're really by nature not? How can he do that? Verse, the end of verse 26, look, it says, So that in light of what Christ has done, in light of what he has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's saying the finished work of Christ is how God can be just and still pardon sinners. <laughs> God is a just judge. He's not ignoring sin. He's not allowing sin to go unpunished. No, justice has been executed on the cross. Christ bore our sin, paid the full punishment uh, for those sins that we deserve. He bore the full brunt of the wrath of God. And the resurrection shows that. The resurrection shows that Christ's payment has been accepted by God the Father. That that the, the penalty has been paid in full. That's what the resurrection declares. And so that, this is how God can justify sinners. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So the, the question still remains, even though we certainly have, have already seen it implied here and mentioned. How is a person justified before God? We see how God can can do this, we see that he declares that he does this for his people, but how do you become one of his people? How do, you, how do you know that your sins have been paid for by Jesus? How do you know that Christ's righteousness has been credited, or you could say imputed, to your account? How do you know that? Well, the answer is by faith. By faith. That's why, I mean, we, we, we see it here in Romans 3, saying those who believe, those who believe, but Back to our our main text, Romans 5, it says it, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, right, he's been building this case, he's talked about it in Romans 3, chapter 4, he lays out Abraham as the great example of someone who was uh, counted righteous through faith in God's promises, and so then he can start off chapter 5 here, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justification, this legal declaration that you are now in a right relationship with God, only comes through faith in Christ. Remember, we saw that this this salvation, this justification is a free gift of God's grace, and that gift is received, applied through faith, through faith. Faith is the means by which we receive God's gracious gift. And again, this is faith in Christ. This is not some faith in ourselves, certainly. It's not some just generic, fuzzy religious faith. No, this is faith in Christ alone. You can only be made right with God through faith in Christ. That means you recognize your great need... That means you recognize, yes, I am a sinner who is separated from God. Yes, I stand on my own merits. I stand guilty before Almighty God. And I'm in danger of being separated from Him forever when I die. You recognize that and you cry out to Him for mercy. And you believe that He has provided means for salvation. You believe that Christ 
is your only hope. You believe that the sinless blood of Christ that was shed on the cross can pay for your sins. You believe that only Christ's perfect life can make you right with God, giving you the righteousness that you need, crediting to you the righteousness that you need. Faith in Christ. Faith is the instruments, the means by which we lay hold of, of Christ, who is our righteousness, who is our salvation. So as we often say, if you, the Bible says, if you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus as your Savior, then God will forgive your sins and he will credit Christ's perfect righteousness to you. That is how you are made right with God. And that's what it means to be justified. And so Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, are you in that we today? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, are you part of that we? Are you right with God? Do you know that your sins have been paid for, that they've been forgiven? Do you know that you've been reconciled to God through Christ alone? I pray that no one will leave this room without knowing that for sure, without calling on God for mercy and saying, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior, and I believe that Jesus is that Savior. He's my only hope. You can do that today. Lay hold of Christ through faith and know that you will be made right with God and that you'll be with him forever. So that's our past event. We have been justified by faith. Next we see a present state. What is true of us right now because of that past event that we have been justified by faith? What is true of us? Well, it's this. A couple of things. Number one, we have peace with God through Christ. Right? Back to Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans 5.1 here shows that the, the primary result, the primary effect of justification is that we have now peace with God. That makes sense, doesn't it? Remember, we're in a right relationship with God now because we've been declared righteous. We've been justified. In Christ, the righteousness that God requires has been credited to us. And in Christ, our sins, which made us God's enemies, have been paid for. So yes, we are reconciled with God. We have peace with him. This peace has been purchased by the death of Christ. And this peace, remember, has been guaranteed by his resurrection. That's what Romans 3 was explaining. And so, if we ever doubt that, when, when Satan would, would accuse us because we still fail, we still commit sins, and when Satan accuses us and brings those to our mind, all we have to do is, is preach the gospel to ourselves, is to remember, no, Christ has paid for my sins. You look at the cross and you know that payment has been made for your sins. You look at the empty tomb with your mind's eye of, of faith through the word. And you say, that payment has been accepted Jesus is risen now. He's ascended. He's my Lord and Savior. I am forgiven. 
I stand forgiven because of Christ. I'm at peace. Think of what that means. We have peace. That's our present state. That's, you could say possession. That's our present possession. We have peace with God. What amazing reality. Christian, do you realize that you no longer live under the fear of judgment? You no longer live having to fear the wrath of God. You have peace with God because of the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. Remember, God's wrath that you deserve, that I deserve, has been poured out on Christ instead of on us. And so we know we have peace with God. We know that his justice has been satisfied. We know that he's not going to punish the same sin twice. There's no wrath left for us. That's why you go ahead to Romans 8. One, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is like the opposite of justification, right? Justification says, you are in a right relationship with me. You're not guilty. Condemnation says, you are guilty. You're condemned. You, you are separated from me. But now because of Christ, we are no longer condemned. We have peace. We know that God loves us. He has adopted us into his family. We are his beloved children. And any of us who are parents can can grasp what that means. Even though we are sinners and we, we don't have nearly the love God has. We're not nearly as patient and steadfast as, the, as God is. But God loves us. So we're, we're part, part of his family. We're, we're one of his children. We know we're at peace with him now and forever. Second thing about our present state. We've obtained access by faith. Right? We saw in verse 1 that now because of justification, because of what Christ has done for us, we have peace with God But then verse 2 says, through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So because we are at peace with God, we can now have a relationship with him. You see how all these things are connected, right? Justification says, uh, it's God legally declaring, you are in a right relationship with me. And verse 2 is just saying, Wow, now we get to live out that relationship. (laughs) We have access to God. (laughs) We can pray to him. We can fellowship with him. We can worship him. We can enjoy him forever. We have a living relationship with the living God. He speaks to us through his word. We, We can worship him throughout the week. We come together to worship him corporately. We sing to him. We pray to him. We can have a vibrant relationship with him. We can come to him with our needs. We cast our cares on him because we know he cares for us. We can bring up the needs of others to him knowing he's a good and powerful and loving God. And this relationship with God is secure. Right? Oftentimes human relationships don't feel that secure, right? Things happen and they... Maybe get broken for a time or broken forever or whatever. 
whatever the case may be. But our relationship with God is secure. Notice it says, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. I love how, that, how that's said, right? It's just like, you know, you sum all this up with, with grace. All these blessings, all these truths, all these realities, it's just grace. It's undeserved favor. He says, into this grace in which we stand. You see how secure that is? It's not shifting. It's not temporary. It's not going to change. We're not going to lose these realities. We're not going to lose these blessings. Our sin and our foolishness still does not break our relationship with God. We don't lose our salvation Because God does not change and his legal declaration does not change. Romans 8 will also say nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus. We are secure in Christ. So we have this secure relationship with God. Now sin, um, I often say sin hinders that relationship, right? It doesn't break it. It messes it up it keeps us from enjoying the 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 full measure of joy that that can be had through that relationship so sin is still serious we need to we need to by the spirit put to death sin we need to confess and repent of sin as the spirit convicts us but our access to god remains secure If you're in Christ, you're in a right relationship with God, and that's not going to change. You're, you, can, you enjoy um, that relationship now. You enjoy foretastes of what that relationship is going to be like in the future. And that leads then to the next point in the outline here. Right? We've seen our, the, the past event and the present state, and now we see our certain future. Again, we're in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Here it is at the end of the verse. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? In hope, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is God's presence. It's who God is. It's being with God. And hope is... Please understand, biblical hope is, is a certainty. It's not like how we use hope. Oh, I, you know, I, hope, I hope it stays cool for a while, right? Very uncertain. No. Biblical hope is certain. And so this is talking about our certain future. It's certain because it's been secured by Christ. It's certain because it's been declared by the promise of God. And again, God doesn't change. He doesn't lie. He doesn't break his promises. And Christ has paid it in full. And so what he's saying here, what, what verse 2 is, is referring to is that the, the certain future of the believer. That one day we will be with God in the new heavens and the new earth. You can see why he says we rejoice in that. That one day we'll be with God as, as Daniel read from Revelation 21 in a place of no more Weeping, no more pain, no more sin, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. 
That's our certain future. The glory of God, being with God forever. And we know that's going to involve our resurrection. Right? That, that when Jesus comes back, all who are in Christ will be raised from the dead in perfect bodies. Jesus is going to eradicate sin once and for all. He's making all things new. And we'll be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Until that time, if we, as believers, die in Christ, our souls are ushered into his presence. So, so you're already getting to enjoy being with God forever. Just not in a physical body in the new heavens and new earth yet. But you're in paradise, Jesus says. So that is our certain future. And you can see why hope is a good word for it, isn't it? That gives us hope, doesn't it? It gives us joy, it gives us hope. Because we know no matter what we're experiencing now, no matter what sicknesses and ailments we experience in our physical body, no matter what struggles and we, we deal with in this fallen world and with our remaining sin, we know that all of that one day will be cast aside, it'll be done away with, and we'll be with him forever in a place of perfection, in a place with no more sin, no more struggle. And so then I close with what should be our ongoing attitude I picked attitude I thought about mindset disposition but you get the idea hopefully what is our ongoing attitude well this passage points us to joy joy verse 2 we rejoice in hope of the glory of God we rejoice in this truth this is a reality the past event has, occurred, has already occurred. We're, we're enjoying now the present state. We know the future is certain. So we can rejoice in this. We rejoice that we are at peace with God. We rejoice that God loves us. We rejoice that God has adopted us into his family. We rejoice that we can enjoy this relationship with him now. That we can, we can pray at any time, anywhere, and be in the throne room of God. With, all, with the creator. With the sovereign of the universe. He knows our name. He loves us. He cares for us. He's our Father. That's that's reason to rejoice. And we know that one day God will welcome us into his presence forever. We hope in the glory of God. He's already said you're in a right relationship with me. And so one day we're going to get to enjoy the fullness of that relationship. The culmination of that relationship. So we rejoice and we have joy because these are truths, these are realities. They're gospel truths, they're good news. I see joy also in verse 3. And this is kind of, it kind of takes an interesting twist in verse 3. I'm not going to exposit the whole passage here, but just look at the way verse 3 begins. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And he goes on and talks about what, what that those sufferings produce, right? Suffering produces endurance, endurance to character, character hope. Hope doesn't put us to shame, verse 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you see how Paul, 
Paul has grounded all this in the gospel. He says, because God has declared us righteous through faith in the finished work of Christ, we're at peace with God. God no longer harbors any wrath toward us. Our salvation is secure. God loves us. We have a relationship with him. Matter of fact, he's already come and and dwelt us by his spirit. And that spirit testifies to the fact that God loves us, that we're his children. He'll say that back in or ahead in chapter 8. And so because of those truths, he says, even though in this fallen life you're going to encounter suffering and trials, because of those gospel truths, when you encounter those sufferings and trials, you are not to conclude, God doesn't love me anymore. God must be mad at me. Look at all the bad things that are happening to me. Look at how I'm suffering. And again, I'm not making light of it. I mean, there is real suffering, right? There's real suffering that takes place. But when we encounter that, we are not to conclude, and, and I've been guilty of, of concluding this. I don't know. There's something in our fallen self that, that draws this wrong conclusion. Oh, God, maybe God doesn't love me anymore. Maybe God's really angry with me. That's, that's the devil. That's not Biblical. Again, God loves you. You're at peace with God. His love has been poured into your hearts. That's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to, again, be reminding us, testifying to us, no, you are God's child. He loves you. Yes, you're going through some suffering right now, but that doesn't mean God loves you. Matter of fact, God has sovereignly brought that into your life because he loves you. Right? And that's a whole other sermon. Right? But God has brought that into your life because he's doing a work with you, or work in you, I should say. He's he's sanctifying you, he's molding you, he's purifying you so that you will draw closer to him. Because that is what you were made for, that's what you were redeemed for, that's where you find your ultimate joy. If left to ourselves, we we still would kind of keep God at an arm's distance and, and just... So he brings suffering into our life so that we will experience the full measure of our relationship with God. And so that's why Paul says we can rejoice even in that. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know God loves us and he's doing a good work in us and he's, he works all things together for our good, conforming us to Christ and for his glory. So that's our ongoing attitude. That's convicting, isn't it? I wonder, is that, does that describe our ongoing attitude, our ongoing disposition, joy? It's a fruit of the Spirit, and so we need the Spirit to produce that in us, but we are responsible to walk in the Spirit, right? We're responsible to, to take captive thoughts, to preach truth to ourselves, to choose joy, to choose joy. So God forgive us when we lose sight of that, when we complain about things, when we've been given such a great gift. We've been declared righteous. We're at a right, in a right relationship with God. Yes, we deal with real struggles and real hurts here, but I mean, what could be greater than that? To know that our future is secure with God, our creator. 
It, it, it gives us such joy, and, and it, I trust it gives us such compassion for others as they go through this life, right? How can they go through this life not, not having that peace, not knowing that they're right with God? Oh, may God give us the open doors to bring them that good news, to implore them to be reconciled to God through Christ so that they too can have that peace. But I conclude with just reminding you of these gospel truths. God loves you. Jesus died for you. You're his. You're at peace with God. He lives inside of you. You're going to be with him forever in a place of no more sin. And so let those truths motivate you. Let those truths empower you to put to death the sin that remains. Right? We know our relationship's secure. We don't need to earn brownie points with God. But, but let us throw off that old man and enjoy our pure and good and permanent relationship with God. And so I call us to rejoice as we take the Lord's Supper here and as we sing to conclude, let us rejoice in God's love. Let us rejoice in God's grace to us. Let us rejoice in his mercy. Let us rejoice in the powerful work of Christ that the the bread and the cup are going to symbolize. Let us rejoice in our God and in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your amazing grace today. Just trying to picture what what it would be like to be in that courtroom still in our own, only in our own merits. How terrifying that would be. How hopeless that would be. Knowing that we are guilty a million times over. But now to know that already those of us who are in Christ, we've been declared righteous. That we're reconciled to you. Thank you so much for that truth. Thank you for that peace. Thank you for that security. That it is a grace in which we stand. Please forgive us for, for complaining about little things. Please forgive us for losing sight of these great truths. I pray that even now as we take the Lord's Supper that you will continue to impress these truths on your people. And Lord, if there's any here today who who don't know you, may you give them the new birth. May you open their eyes May you draw them to Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If I could have the men come forward, please, who are going to serve us. Um, again, as I've, as I've said, um, the Lord's Supper is um, something that God gives us to remind us of these truths, knowing that we need to be reminded of them. And so um, they're, they're physical symbols of what Christ has done for us. And so it, the Bible is very clear that 
The bread and the cup should only be taken by those who are in Christ, by those who um, have turned from their sins and trusted in, in Jesus alone as their Savior. So if that doesn't um, describe you today, I would ask that you just let the, the, the bread and the cup pass by. But if you're in Christ, please, please take. And, and um, as they're passing it out, we'll have time for kind of personal reflection with the Lord. And it's a good time to confess sins, to rejoice in him, to draw near to him. And then we'll, we'll take the bread and the cup together.